Welcome to Under the Oaks. I'm Lauren Thompson. And I'm Pastor Trent Sari. We're coming to you from the urban sprawl, the inner city, if you will, of the township of Pleasant Springs. Stuck here between the massive structures of, well, uh, some soybean fields and cornfields. So, A couple trees. A couple trees. We're glad to have you with us. And just for your information, this is episode two, and we're going to be picking up on a discussion that we started last time. We're following a course, roughly, that was written many years ago by a man named Oswald Reese called What Does the Bible Say? Today we're going to be talking about what the Bible says about itself. And you might say, well, that kind of sounds like a boring discussion. But what you'll find is this is actually a very relevant discussion because, uh, well, for, for one thing, every single church out there claims to be Bible-based or to teach the Bible, right? I mean, I don't think any church out there has a sign that says, we don't teach the Bible, or we don't really hold to the Bible. Uh, so most Christians would say, well, my church teaches what the Bible teaches. That's what we follow. But we need to really understand the Bible on its own terms so that we can measure that statement and see if it's accurate or not. So these these are interesting and relevant topics that I think are, are worthwhile for us to check into. Well, I guess maybe the, the first and obvious question that we would ask, though, is, you know, what, what, what do we mean when we talk about the Bible? What is the Bible? And in Mark chapter 7, Jesus said, Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, a given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. Now, the first part is an interesting statement in and of itself, but really what we want to focus on here is two things. Jesus uh, quotes what Moses wrote in terms of the fourth commandment, honor your father and your mother. The people that he's speaking to chose to ignore that, and therefore he says, you've made void. He doesn't say the word of Moses. He says the word of God. So he equates what Moses wrote with the very word of God as the same thing. So this is one example where we would say the Old Testament, as it was recorded by Moses and the prophets who wrote many of the books, uh, so on and so forth, this was God's word. That's how they saw it. That's how they treated it. That's how Jesus himself treated it. So similarly, we would, we would expect to find something like that in the New Testament as well. And there are many passages, but 1 Thessalonians 2, St. Paul writes, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So there we see, uh, you know, Paul would say that the things that he wrote, the things that he, he said to his you know, various churches that he wrote his letters to, was not Paul's opinions or, you know, what is Paul thinking about these topics, but it was actually the very word of God. And the book of Hebrews also says, Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. So the first part of the Bible, which we call the Old Testament, is the Word of God. The other part of the Bible that we call the New Testament is the Word of God. 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. 
and yet the whole Bible from beginning to end is considered to be the Word of God, sometimes called Holy Scripture, the Scriptures, the Word of God, or simply Biblios, which means book, uh, the Bible, the book. And and that's an important part, is it, it's the Word of God. It's not just a group of stories that somebody wrote from what they grew up listening to or without firsthand knowledge, this is actually the Word of God. Absolutely. And this is going to be a very important point uh, in, in a discussion that we're going to have here in just a minute, So, which is centering around who wrote the Bible, right? You know, you have lots of shows on television today, and I mentioned this last time, you know, a lot of Bible scholars or quote-unquote Bible scholars on TV who really don't believe what the Bible says about itself, They've got a lot of theories about how it was written or how it was transmitted and, you know, these, these oral stories that were carried on for generations and so on. And it took many years before these things were written down. But what does the Bible say about itself? And here's where we see that. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We'll get to the second part of that statement in a second, but the first part that we want to acknowledge is that it says that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we don't, we don't disagree that the Bible was hit, written through the hands of men. Certainly that's uh, testified everywhere throughout the Bible. We'll hear about you know Moses writing the first five books. We'll hear about David in the Psalms and so on and all of Paul's letters and the gospel writers, we don't deny that the Bible was written through the hands of men. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. So we often say that those who wrote the Old Testament, we refer to them as the prophets, those who spoke on behalf of God to God's people. And they recorded that down in the Old Testament writings, the sacred scriptures. Similarly, in the New Testament, St. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So again, notice that Paul says, you know, the words that he speaks are not given by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. So in the New Testament, obviously we acknowledge the apostolic writings. Uh, when, when Jesus chose the twelve, and he prays for those who would come to believe through them, especially the, the writings of the apostles that we have in the New Testament, the epistles and the gospels. We acknowledge these to be the very words that God himself has given for our good. In Ephesians chapter 4, uh, it says, God gave the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building of, of the body of Christ. So we mentioned a third category there. We talked about prophets and apostles, but here we also see the word evangelists. And uh, that term in its simplest form just means to proclaim the good news. But when we refer to the evangelists in the New Testament, especially in this regard, we're talking about 
you know, there's a couple of Gospels that were not written by apostles. We think about Mark and Luke, Luke being a physician. So how do we account for that? Well, we know that they were traveling companions of Peter and Paul. So what we read there in those Gospels is also the apostolic word too. But they're included here as evangelists. So the Bible was written by men. Men who wrote the Old Testament were called prophets. The men who wrote the New Testament called evangelists and apostles. Apostles just means sent ones. We think about the 12 that Jesus appointed as apostles and sent to proclaim his word on his behalf. Now, the big question, how can we say that the Bible is the word of God when we, we just acknowledged that the Bible was written by the hands of men? That sounds like a contradiction, and a lot of people wrestle with that. They say, well, if the Bible was written by men, then we know it has to be full of errors and contradictions, and it, we can't really trust it because men are not trustworthy. But we also emphasize the other side of it, the divine side of it. Men wrote as they were moved and carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that's what uh, St. Peter wrote in Second Peter chapter 1, that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Not as how they felt they were moved by the Holy Spirit as they were carried along. This is kind of interesting. We're, t we're talking about the doctrine of a verbal inspiration of the scriptures. And that word inspire in our minds means something very different than what, what it means in the Bible. So, Lauren, when I, when I say something inspires me or what inspires you, what, are, what do you think of that? It gets, it gets you excited about something. Yeah, something that moves you emotionally most of the time, right? So I, was, I watched that movie and I really felt inspired to do whatever. Um, but when we're going to talk about the doctrine of verbal inspiration here, maybe you've heard, you know, this really has the idea of breathing out or breathing in. Uh, we talk about expire, perspire, inspire. All of these words kind of come from the same uh, notion of this air coming in or out of our bodies, right? So these men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We're going we're gonna to see this point in, in a little bit here. In 2 Samuel 23, David said, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. So David was aware of this. We're not saying that these men were robots or somehow they were controlled by the Holy Spirit so that they were in a trance-like state and they weren't conscious of what was going on. When David spoke this way, he, he could even acknowledge, his word is on my tongue. He understood that the Spirit of the Lord was speaking by him or through him. In 1 Corinthians 2, again, St. Paul says, We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And then, of course, probably most importantly, St. Paul in 2 Timothy says, all scripture is breathed out. And there's the, where we get the idea of inspiration. It's breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So from these verses, and many other verses, by the way, again, I don't want to make it sound like these are the only verses that speak to this issue. We're, we're choosing a handful of verses to demonstrate a point, but certainly we could cite many many more. From these verses, however, we, we know that God moved or inspired the prophets, the evangelists, and the apostles to write. He's the one who moved them to put the pen to the paper, uh, to give them an idea that this is what they needed to do. Uh, 
we also know that all scripture was breathed out by God to the sacred writers, that God put into their minds the very thoughts that they had. Also, more importantly, well, just as importantly, I shouldn't say more importantly, the very words which they wrote. We call that the doctrine of verbal inspiration, verbal being a reference to words. Now, why is this important? Why am I emphasizing this? Because a lot of people, if you look on churches websites, they'll have their doctrinal statements on there. Or if you look on denominational websites, they'll have their doctrinal statements on there. I know it's kind of become in vogue lately to denounce doctrinal statements. We believe in deeds, not creeds. Well, there's no such thing. You either confess something or you you confess nothing. But this idea that the very words themselves were inspired by God is important because very often you'll see statements like this. We believe that the Bible contains God's word. Now, is that a true statement? True. It is true. However, it's, it's beyond. It goes beyond that. Yeah, it, it doesn't quite fully convey what the scripture says about itself. And it also leaves the door open. So anybody could say, well, yeah, the Bible contains the word of God. But, of course, the problem is always with the but, right? Right. <laughs> uh, but yeah. it also contains oh man's opinions, it contains errors, it contains you know stories that were passed on, whatever it might be, implying that some of it you, you need to pay attention to as the word of God, some of it you don't have to pay attention to. And it's up to you to sort of decipher what's truly God's word and what's truly not. And of course, uh, this has opened the door to throwing out a whole, uh, you know, passages or books or, or sections of the Bible for people to ignore specific things that are said about particular sins or how a person is saved or whatever it might be. So in and of itself, it's not a bad statement, but it's not a complete statement. And it's usually purposely worded that way to leave wiggle room so that they can they can also say other things about the scriptures. Or, or leave things out. Right. So we talk about the, the Bible being inspired by God, given by inspiration, in the, not just the thoughts, but every single word. And that's important from cover to cover. If it's, if it's God's word from cover to cover, do we get to throw parts of it out? No. Do we get to add to parts of it? No. So... Again, there's always this twin danger of either subtracting from God's word or adding to it. Now, I should have mentioned that in the original languages that the Bible was written in, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and the New Testament was written in Greek. And obviously, our pastors in our synod are trained to look at the Hebrew and Greek. They understand it and how to translate it and read it. Uh, this is an important skill. Because sometimes in translation, it's hard to get the full nuance of a particular passage simply by looking at the English. And so it's important that our pastors continue to learn these languages. But that should not give you any reason to doubt the translations that you have before you. Insofar as your translation conveys the truth of what God wrote, we know that it is also a reflection of the truth. It is also inspired by God. So we don't just say, well, the specific words in the Hebrew and Greek were the inspired words. We're also speaking of the content behind them, which God wishes to communicate to us. So this is why we can translate the Bible into any language out there in the world, and we can still call it God's word. 
a, a word on that, I suppose, would be worth mentioning. There's, there's a lot of different translations out there, and a lot of people would say, well, what makes a good Bible translation? And so there's, there's a few that are popular today. Obviously, we think about the good old uh, King James from 1611, uh, the old standby. There are churches that teach that that's the only English version that's acceptable, that it's almost given like a second inspiration, so to speak. There's the New King James, which is close. New King James is, is good. The, uh, again, uh, it's it kind of follows the tradition of the King James. It updates some of the language, but it's still a very good translation. The English Standard Version is popular in, in some of our circles. Uh, the old NIV from 1984, I believe it was, uh, was Correct. popular for quite a few years. Today, there's there's a variety of new translations and so on and so forth there. Now, some people will ask, well, what's a good Bible and what makes a good Bible versus a better Bible and so on and so forth. I just, I'll try to briefly just say that there are, there's kind of three schools of thought when it comes to translating the Bible. And remember, most of these translations are done by a team of translators from a variety of different backgrounds. So they come to these, these translations, you know, maybe with a little bit of bias, uh, but with their own ideas of language and, and so on. So in one school, we would say there is more of the wooden translations. They try to translate literally word for word from the Greek and the Hebrew. And this, this is a good thing, right? There's, there's a, a lot less of chance of injecting your own kind of subjective ideas into a translation that simply just takes one word and translates it and one word and translates it. However, sometimes this can come across as kind of wooden and difficult to read. Uh, because hard, hard to understand. It can be hard to understand. Sometimes the word order in the Hebrew and the Greek uh, is such that it's not like English where you have a certain order to where you place uh, you know, subject, object, verb, and so on. So, you know, a certain amount of rearranging is, is, is done in, the, in that regard as well. But for the most part, they try to, to follow kind of the idea of a word-for-word -word translation. In, in that family of translations, I would put, you know, the King James family, the New King James, uh, the English Standard Version, the newer uh, translation that came out in recent years, probably, I don't know, the last 20 years, is pretty good in that regard, too. The NASB is also a, a good, very good literal translation. The next group of translations are what we call, you know, dynamic equivalence translations. And for the most part, they, they look at the original as well, and they try to just make it a little bit smoother to, under, uh, to read and to understand. Again, paying attention to the original languages, if it's done conservatively, it can be quite good. The early NIV, 1984, was, was a decent translation. The new one in 2011, not so good. Uh, where they, they, they make gender-neutral references and so on, where they're not there in the, in the original. But that's a whole other discussion. Anyways, dynamic equivalence is, is kind of trying to meet somewhere in the middle and say, well, we want to be literal, but at the same time we want to be readable, and we want people to sort of understand it, some of the archaic language or words we want to update, and so on and so forth. And then on the other side of it, you have what we call a paraphrase, in essence, you know, where people basically ask the question, what do I think God was trying to say to us here? And here's, here's how he, could, he would have said it in a modern language. Make it more relatable to today. Versus... Yeah, and, and a lot of people like these translations, things like the message or the New Living Translation. The problem with it, though, is this. 
it becomes very subjective. What do I think God was trying to say? How do you know that you got it right? Uh, and relating it today and tomorrow could be different. Yeah, yeah, and there's less of an emphasis on the original uh, language there, the original right. words. that, and, and, You know, when you're word for word, there's not a whole lot you can inject into it. But now when you start to say, well, what do I think God was trying to say? You open the door to a lot of subjective ideas and opinions and biases as well. And that gets dangerous. It is. So a lot of these translating teams are made up of mostly uh, people who come from the reform persuasion, the, the non-Lutheran Protestants. So there's times where, especially in those translations, in the, in the dynamic equivalent and, and in, in the paraphrases, where you definitely see a reformed bias in how they translate things. And they also you know, sometimes don't get the original uh, right at all. That being said, I don't want to, you know, make anybody worry that, you know, if they have a New Living Translation Bible at home that they can't read it. I would just say, you know, whenever there's a question, you really need to make sure that you're allowing the scriptures to interpret themselves. I, I don't, we don't have to have a special Bible in order to, to get things right. I mean, I can go pick up a Bible off the shelf at Walmart, and even if they translate one passage bad, I can use the rest of the Bible to show what was really meant there. As a whole. Yeah, as a whole. I mean, that being said, do we want a, a Bible that's going to be faithful and an accurate translation? Absolutely. I mean, I would encourage everybody to get one from the first family that I mentioned, the more word for word. Um, if you want to keep the other ones for devotional reading or for comparison, that's always fine too. But, you know, the point being is that we need to be discriminating and understand that sometimes there are these these translations that are just not not as good. They might read better. They might they might be easy for a person to read, and they might be enjoyable. But when it comes to accuracy and really wanting to get to the the bottom of what does God teach about something, they're not going to necessarily be as good or reliable in getting you to that place. At least not in one verse. Sometimes, like I said, if we if we use the analogy of faith and use the sum total of what the scriptures teach, it becomes a little bit easier. Now, I could probably spend a lot more time talking about Bible translation here, uh, but I don't want to get too sidetracked. Obviously, it, it is an important discussion, and this idea of the doctrine of verbal inspiration means that we take every word that God spoke seriously. We, we, this is why it's important that we want to find a good translation, uh, because we want to know what God actually said. You know, if it was just man's opinions or if it was just somebody's ideas, then, you know, what translation you use, probably not such a big deal. But because it is God's word, every single word of it, we want to make sure that we're getting something that's going to convey that to us accurately without adding to it and without taking away from it. Without adding a human logic system to it. Right. So we'll talk more about that too. Uh, the idea of we, we don't put reason above Scripture. We allow Scripture to it, interpret Scripture. Uh, there's plenty of things that the Bible says that are difficult for us to understand but we don't get the right to say, well, I can't understand that, therefore it can't be true. So again, this gets back to the importance of really understanding what the original languages say and what they teach and what the Bible says about itself. And that's what our topic is for today's episode. Now, what are some of the qualities of the Bible according to the Bible itself? Jesus would say in his high priestly prayer in John 17, sanctify them in the truth your word is truth. Sanctify to make holy and make them holy in the truth. And your word is truth. So God's word is true. It's without errors. It's without contradictions. 
And because it is without errors and contradictions, it's completely trustworthy in all of its parts. Now, uh, I know that there are a number of people who would, who would be quick to point out, well, there's differences in numbers in uh, some of the accounting in the Old Testament. You know, you've got uh, a list that will list uh, the numbers of the tribes or whatever it might be in one book. And then in the next book, there seems to be numbers that are not jiving together or whatever. But I'll say that upon closer examination, those kind of discrepancies or apparent discrepancies can be reconciled. There's nothing doctrinally that's going to be contradicting itself. And uh, there's without errors or contradictions. There are seeming contradictions, but there's no actual contradictions. And as I said, therefore, it's trustworthy. As Jesus said, the scripture cannot be broken. Uh, you can lean on it. Like I'm leaning on this table. I know it's not going to give way. The word of God is what faith rests securely on. Uh, I think a lot of people have this idea, well, you know, it's Jesus in my heart, and here's what I feel, and here's what I think. At the end of the day, you know, the old Sunday school song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Uh, there's some substance to that, because faith rests securely when it rests on the Word of God, which is objectively true outside of us. In Psalm 119, we come across that famous passage, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. If you've ever tried to walk in the dark, what happens? You bump into things. You bump into things. Maybe you stub your toe. Maybe you step on a nail. Maybe you step on a... When I lived in the desert, you had to worry about stepping on scorpions. At uh, night. That, would be, that would be bad. Yeah, or a rattlesnake. You know, That's not good either. So there's a danger to not being able to see where we're going. But God's word is that light uh, for our feet and a light to our path. Uh, well, a path leads us someplace, right? Right. Uh, here we're talking about the path of salvation. How does a person get to heaven? It's not something we can know by nature, as we talked about last time. It's God's word that reveals it to us. So truly, it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. In St. Luke's Gospel, the 16th chapter, we have the account of the rich, rich man and poor Lazarus. The rich man being in torments in Hades and Lazarus being at Abraham's side. Of course, the rich man says, hey, why don't you send Lazarus over to me? I need some water. Uh, he still treats him like a servant, even though Lazarus is in heaven and the rich man is in hell. But later in that story, the rich man says to Abraham, he says, well, why don't you send somebody from the dead to my brothers who are alive and warn them against this place. And Abraham gives this response. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. God's word is sufficient. The, the references there, obviously, to Moses, Moses and the prophets would have been the Old Testament scriptures. He says, you know, no, if they do a miracle, if somebody comes to him from the dead, then they'll believe. No, uh, faith doesn't come by signs and wonders. It comes from hearing the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Of course, the irony there is that there was somebody who did rise from the dead and they still didn't believe in him, obviously Christ himself. In Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, we are warned, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Obviously, this is being uh, spoken to the people of Israel. Uh, but the same warning applies to us. We see that again echoed in the book of Revelation uh, where St. John writes, I warn everyone, well, Jesus through St. John would say, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. 
And if anyone takes away the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So two warnings that are basically saying the same thing. We don't want to add to God's word. That is bad. And we don't want to subtract from God's word. That is bad. It is what it is. Yeah, so I always warn, um, you know, as Christians, we want to walk the biblical center. And that means that there's always a danger on both sides of the aisle or both sides of the road, to use another illustration. Uh, You know, people, uh, we use the terms liberal and conservative or legalists and liberalism. Uh, Legalism and liberalism, maybe that's a good one, two good ones. And... Both of those things have appealing aspects that want to lure us over to their side. But in, in a very simplistic way, I would say legalism tends towards adding to God's word, speaking where God has not spoken, making rules that God did not speak. Uh, that is, you know, what legalists do. Liberals, on the other side, uh, they want to subtract from God's word. They want to ignore parts of it. They want to say, well, that doesn't apply to me. And, uh, of course, that's always appealing, too, because if I don't have to listen to everything God says, well, that makes life a lot easier for me, especially my sinful nature. And a legalist, uh, you know, legalism is appealing to people on a self-righteous level. Uh, it's, it's nice if I can add things and say, look at how much better I am because I'm doing these things and you don't do those things. Uh, yes, but the Bible doesn't say you have to do those. Well, it doesn't matter. I'm still better than you. I mean, so... Legalism feeds on the self-righteous tendencies in us, and liberalism feeds on the, the sinful nature's uh, rebellion against God and his authority and his word. So both things are bad, and in the Lutheran Church and confessional Lutheranism, we reject both legalism, adding to God's word, and we reject liberalism, taking away from God's word. And yet, when we look at the Christian world today, as I, as I mentioned before in regard to, uh, you know, do you believe that the, the Bible is God's inspired, inerrant, infallible word, every single word of it, you'll find that a lot of Christian churches don't answer it the same way we do. Or you'll also find in terms of this idea that we reject both legalism and liberalism. And the, the, the sinful nature's tendency is to react against one or the other and to fall into the other extreme. So, when I see that ignoring parts of the Bible is bad and liberalism is bad, I might say, I got to get out of that. And I find myself in the other ditch or the other side of the road in legalism where I'm adding to it and I'm thinking, oh, I'm so much better than everyone else because I'm doing all these things. And, you know, if the Bible says that, I'm going to go the extra step and I'll even say, you can't do this or that or the other. And it sounds very pious. It sounds very zealous. You want to be, it makes you feel closer to God or more like God, maybe. Right. It's a piety and zeal that's not based on truth. Though. It's not based on God's word. So there's a danger on both sides. Or if, we react, if we're coming out of a church or a background where somebody's very legalistic, where there is all these, you know, you can't, you can't dance, you can't watch movies, you can't drink alcohol, all these types of things that the Bible doesn't say, you can see where, you know, a very liberal approach becomes appealing too. Well, I don't want to do that. I don't want to, you know, be one of those people. So... I find myself over in the other ditch. What's much more difficult is to walk the biblical center uh, because there's always a temptation for us to to go one way or the other. Now, I I guess I've probably said uh, enough on that, Uh, which brings us to, you know, one of our final questions here. What purpose did God give us the Bible for? As I said, uh, the Bible is clear. It's, it's, uh, 
it's clear enough that even a child can understand the essence of what it teaches, and yet it's deep enough that we can spend our lives studying it and never know all of its content. It's sufficient. It tells us everything that we need to know about God's will for us and how we are saved, and therefore it's our highest authority in all spiritual matters. We use it to measure every teaching that comes to us so that we don't fall into one of those traps of either legalism or liberalism. In 2 Chronicles chapter 34, we read, You humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. So one of the purposes of the scriptures is to point out our shortcomings, uh, to, to point out our errors, to bring us to a knowledge of our sin. And we don't like that. That makes us uncomfortable. Uh, nobody wants to, to hear about all of their flaws and imperfections. But it's like going to the doctor. Why are people afraid of going to the doctor? Because they're afraid they're going to get bad news, right? And I think sometimes people come to the, the Bible with that same idea. I don't, I don't want to read it because I don't really want to hear what it has to say about me or what's living in my heart. If we don't see our sinfulness, we don't really see our need for a Savior. So we wouldn't say this is the chief purpose of the Bible, but certainly, you know, the law is there to show us our sin. It's to give us knowledge of sin. And God works through that to call us to repentance. And that's what's being spoken of here in this verse in Second Chronicles. In Second Timothy, Paul says, From childhood you have been acquainted with the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So this is the primary purpose of the scriptures, to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The Bible is a book that centers on Christ from cover to cover. And that's, that's a, we talk about the Christocentricity of the scriptures. If you, if you read the Bible any other way, you miss the point. Is the Bible a book about geography or science or history? Well, it, it contains those things for sure. But if that's all you read it as, it's not written to be a geography book. It's not written to be uh, merely a history book. It's not written to be merely a science book. It's a book about man's fall into sin, God's promise of a Savior, God's fulfillment of that promise of a Savior in time in sending the person of Jesus Christ, and all that that means for us. So to read the Bible without seeing Christ at the center is to completely miss the point of it. And this is where I, I warned about secular Bible scholars. There's plenty of secular colleges with so-called experts in the Bible or the television shows on you know, Discovery or National Geographic, whatever it might be. Very often, the people that they interview are not people who believe what the Bible says about itself. They don't believe that it's really centered on Christ and he's the key to understanding all of it. So that's the primary purpose, is to bring us to faith in Christ, knowledge of our Savior. 1 Peter chapter 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. So the scriptures are food for our soul as well. It's how we grow in our faith, in our knowledge of our Savior. It's how we're strengthened for our day-to-day -day life. It's, it's an encounter with the living God. If it's inspired by God, it's God-breathed. It's also, it's living and active. It's powerful and efficacious to accomplish its, its purposes. When we read the Bible, it's not like reading just information about it a long time ago. It's God himself comes to us through that word. It's sacramental. We'll talk more about that word in a while. 
Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way? By guarding it according to your word. So it reveals to us what God's will is for our lives. It reveals to us what is going to be best for our lives. Certainly that is useful knowledge to have, especially when we pay attention to it. Titus 1.9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. In our world, nobody wants to say anyone else is wrong. That's offensive. That's divisive. And yet the whole notion of truth demands that there's also something called falsehood. And so, you know, it's impossible to confess the truth without at the same time condemning falsehood. So, yes, throughout this course, I will probably be mentioning what other churches teach. Uh, not because I'm saying that there's not Christians in those churches, not because I'm saying those people are going to hell, not because I, I think those people are bad people, but I think if truth is truly truth, it's worth pointing out where people contradict the truth. Right. Truth isn't relative. Right. You need to know this, and it's important to us. And furthermore, you, to confess the truth also means that you will, you will be contradicting and even condemning falsehood. And that's always going to be offensive to people who hold to that falsehood. So it's nothing personal, but we use the scriptures in this way, and this is exactly what Paul says here, that we might be instructed in sound doctrine and also be able to refute those who contradict it. And certainly we live in a world where there are many who want to contradict it. I mean, we talk about worldviews or ideologies out there. Yikes, it's scary, man. Look at the world that we're living in in the last just few months that you see these things coming out clearer and clearer. There's a real hatred and animosity towards God and his word, the truth especially. In Psalm 119, uh, we read the psalmist says, If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. And here we see that it's God's word that even in the midst of affliction gives us comfort. It gives us strength. It gives us encouragement. It gives us you know, the grace to endure whatever troubles may come our way. And that's an important aspect of, of the scriptures as well. Uh, because let's face it, we all have baggage, we all have hard times, we all have struggles. And where are we going to find hope in this world? In the material things that are here one day and gone the next? In, in money or relationships which are constantly changing? Or in something that's unchanging? God's promises to us that he'll never leave us or forsake us. You know, where are we going to draw true comfort from? Drugs and alcohol or from the fact that we have a God who loves us and promises to be with us always? Now, how are we to use the Bible as kind of the last point we want to discuss here? Uh, Jesus in John 5 says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. So we, we certainly should read and study God's word diligently but not just to, to, to get a bunch of facts in our, in our minds. Because of the things I mentioned earlier, it's through that word that God comes to us with the forgiveness that Jesus has won for us. It's through that word that God comes to strengthen us. It's there where we grow in our faith and grow in our knowledge of our Savior, uh, where we're, pre we're prepared to deal with the world around us. We're able to, to uh, defend ourselves against the errors and the onslaughts of falsehood. So there's many reasons to search the scriptures, but certainly it's those scriptures that bear witness to Christ and center on him, as I mentioned. In the book of Acts chapter 17, it says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, 
And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So we always talk about the example of the Bereans in Acts 17. They used, uh, they didn't just take Paul's word for it. He didn't come in and, uh, you know, just say, well, I'm Paul, you need to listen to me. They wanted to know that what Paul was speaking was truly the word of God. And so they would listen to him, but they would go back and they would fact check it. They would do their Snopes work, I suppose. Although, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not, you know, some of those things are not so good anymore, I don't think. <laughs> right. But, uh, they would measure everything that Paul spoke against the scriptures. And so we talk about the scriptures being the fount and source of all of our, our theological teaching, but also as the measuring stick by which we understand and see truth and falsehood. We don't say, well, that just sounds bad. I don't, I don't agree with those guys over there. Well, why don't you agree? Is it because the scriptures themselves don't agree, or is it just because you don't like that opinion? Right. And that's something we need to do today. That's something we need to do today, yep. So don't don't ever take somebody's word for it, and this is where I would encourage you, even as you're listening to this program, uh, you know, just because I say something or Lauren says something, search the scriptures. I, I've always said, uh, you know, if you think we're cherry-picking these verses or taking them out of context, you know, feel free to challenge us. I can, I can pull out many, many other verses which will, will make the point. So we're not limited to these verses by any means. But it's good for you to be convinced on your own, not to take somebody else's word for it. You know, to be confirm, firmly convinced in your own mind that this is truth. Jesus said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So it's not just hearing as if hearing God's word magically works on us. Uh, we want to also ponder it, meditate on it, reflect on it, keep it, obey it. Uh, it it's, it's food for our soul. So it shouldn't go in one ear and write out the other. And of course, we do this by God-given faith, something we can't do by nature as we come into this world. It's only through that faith granted by the work of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who reveals truth in the scriptures, who convinces us of that truth, and who enables us to believe that truth centered in the person of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We have the example of Mary, who treasured up all the things that were told to her by the angels in Luke 2, and says, it says that she pondered them in her heart. I say she, I, like, I always like the word ruminate. She ruminated on the word of God as it came to her from uh, the angel. But ruminate is, is more of a, uh, I suppose, a in our circles around here, uh, people would probably understand what that means because it's a, more something that a farmer would think about. We think about animals that chew their cud. You know, they, they eat something and then it goes down and it comes back up and they chew it again. So we're not just one and done. We don't read the Bible once and say, oh, I've already read that book. I know what it says. It's a continuing process. Every, every time we read the Bible, it's like walking into a room you've been in a hundred times and seeing something new. I can't tell you, this is what's so interesting and exciting about reading the Bible to me, is I can't read it without learning something new or, or seeing it from a different angle that I hadn't seen before. And it's exciting because you can't exhaust it. There's no way you can. You can read it a hundred times and you're going to see things that you never saw the previous time. So many small points that you miss if you, you got to look at it again and again and again. And the connections and all of these uh, foreshadowing illustrations and, and all of this, uh, like I said, the depth there that's there. Uh, it was said by one of the early early church fathers that the Gospel of Mark, and I think it could be said of the entire scriptures, 
you know, that it's shallow enough that a baby could wade through the scriptures. I mean, uh, our Sunday school kids certainly understand that Jesus, Jesus loves me. He died on the cross to take away my sins. And yet you can spend your life studying it like a scholar in minute detail, and you're never going to come close to exhausting it. It's deep enough for an elephant to, to swim in. You know, that's, that's kind of the point there. In John 14, Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He also said in another instance, If you keep my word, you're truly my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So we, we want to know God's word. We want to live according to it. And because it is our Savior's word and our Lord's word, it's important to us. In Acts 4, we cannot speak but of what we have seen and heard. As, as we have heard, so we believe and so we confess. Uh, we make confession of the truth that God has first revealed to us. Uh, so when we, we talk in our church about confessing the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or the Athanasian Creed, you'd say, well, that's not in the Bible. You know, the creeds aren't in the Bible. That's true. But insofar as they confess biblical truth, they are confessing confessing the truth. They are confessing the true Christian faith, which has existed from the time of the apostles, well, even back into the Old Testament, if you want to look at it that way. So, so we continue to make confession, not based on our opinions, not based on our feelings or hunches or intuitions, but based on objective truth, what's true in the scriptures and what's always been true in the scriptures. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard, what we've been convinced of by the Holy Spirit working through that word. And finally, First uh, Peter chapter 3. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. God didn't give us his word so that we could go beat other people over the head with it. And unfortunately, there are times where we've probably all encountered a Christian who in his zeal for the truth was not very tactful and uh, can be very angry and shouting and uh, condemning and, and so on and so forth. Uh, I think we have to be passionate and, and tactful and careful, but also we have to consider that the whole reason for sharing the truth with somebody is so that they too would know their Savior, Jesus. We want to do it with gentleness and respect. Uh, simply shouting at somebody or beating them over the head is not really showing them love or concern or care. You know, some people are caught in error over out of weakness. It's not because they obstinately reject the truth. There are those who do that too. But we got to remember that a lot of people are caught up in things that they just don't understand fully yet. And, you know, we, we too have all probably been there in, in one way or the other in, in times past and even in the present. So we would want somebody to uh, uh, to lead us to the truth in a compassionate way that shows that they actually do care about us. It's not just that they're trying to put a notch in their belt. So hopefully this, this discussion of what the Bible says about itself is valuable to you. If you have questions, you can feel free to contact us through the website, email, uh, text, whatever it might be. But thank you for joining us once again here on Under the Oaks. Uh, this is Pastor Trent Sari. And I'm Lauren Thompson. Join us next time.